Second Peter. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> We've already gone through First Peter, so if you're curious about First Peter, you can go on. I think it's on the internet, or we can get you tapes of that um, from before. But um, before we actually get started, it's a short little book, so I'm actually going to read through um, the entire book, just three chapters. But I think it's good that sometimes you've got to remember that these books were written as letters. And so how many times when you get a letter in the mail do you read a paragraph and set it down and come back later and read another paragraph? You don't do that. You read the whole thing in its entirety. So even though it's going to take a little bit of time, uh, a couple minutes anyway, we can read through and you can follow along. I'm reading out of the ESV, so um, follow along in your Bibles as well. So Second Peter chapter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins therefore brothers Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up. By way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark 
places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are so ignorant, which also will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, and mists driven by the storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they're enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bothers will be melt as they burn, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them, speaks in them on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unsatiable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, this is just a a wonderful little epistle that is penned here for us. And uh, you have a little outline there. We're just going to go over the introductory uh, material today and we'll get into the, the text next week. But 
as far as way of introduction, uh, the opening verse here claims that it was written by the Apostle Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you can dig through commentaries, and you can find a whole bunch of people that say, well, we don't think it's the same Peter that wrote 1 Peter because the language is different, and one's classical, one's not, as far as the Greek language goes, and there's some other differences. Well, Peter wrote through a uh, secretary, basically, the first book of Peter. So maybe he used this different secretary or he wrote this himself. Who knows? But we, we believe what the Word of God says here. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1 says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote the book. He claims that he was written by Peter himself. And you can spend hours and hours discussing that, but I'm just going to accept that by faith and we're going to uh, move on. This This was originally known as uh, Simon Peter was originally known as si- Simon, remember, and, and Jesus renamed him, okay, the rock or, or rock, uh, Simeon or Simon. Basically, one is Greek, one is Hebrew, Simon being the Greek one. And so many times in the early history of the church, when this book was introduced into the canon, there was a lot of people that were skeptical of it because. Uh, they didn't think Peter wrote it, and they thought some other things. It didn't contain the proper, maybe, theological information that First Peter had. And, and, um, but it was accepted into the canon, and we counted it as one. It was actually called Petru B in the beginning, meaning Second Peter or Peter B. Uh, and uh, we, we know some things about Peter himself. Uh, we know that he was brought to Andrew, uh, basically brought him to Christ, and uh, you can read about that, and I'll just read that for you out of John chapter 1. It's kind of a neat account how the Lord transforms and how the Lord uses us to bring people to Christ. Uh, John 1 verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus that day was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And verse 41 says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And that's our first kind of introduction to this man, Peter. He was Andrew's brother, and his brother brought him to Christ. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God uses us, even though salvation is totally of God, that we don't save people. We never have. We never will. But God has left us here on earth with the the glorious message of the gospel for the express purpose of sharing it with others. For the purpose of going out into a lost and dying world and, and exclaiming, proclaiming that Christ truly saves, that he is risen from the dead. That's the gospel message, that their sins can be forgiven. Uh, just sideline here, we're going to be starting a little class uh, the first week in May, and uh, Dan's going to be helping with that, and uh, it's going to be a little evangelism class. It's going to meet every the first Sunday of each month, and they're going to spend a little time learning some maybe biblical techniques as far as evangelism go and have a little time of prayer and then some folks are going to go out actually into our community and uh, here on the peninsula and share Christ with people. 
That's, that's an effective ministry that God has left us here to do, that so many churches fall short. And we probably all do that individually. But if you're interested in that, you can talk to myself or, or Dan and um, uh, Dan Thomas, piano player here, that uh, helps us out. So we're going to be working together on that. But the good opportunity. Well, here we see that, that Andrew brought Peter to uh, the Lord. Peter was married. And apparently his wife accompanied him in his ministry. If you look over at the, the Gospel of uh, Mark, we can see this kind of spelled out for us. Mark chapter 1. We know that Peter was married. Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 29 To 31, it says, uh, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's, what's it say? Mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. It also, so he had a mother-in-law, so clearly he was married. Um, that's the only way you get that. I never heard of a guy that wasn't married that wanted a mother-in-law. That's usually not the, not the thing on the high list. Now, they want the wife, but sometimes the rest of the family comes with it, doesn't it? My brother-in-law always says, man, I didn't know when I was marrying your sister, I was marrying all of you. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way it works in our family. You got all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. It says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, Paul writes, and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas, or Peter? So it indicates that his wife actually accompanied him in his ministry. Uh, Peter was called to follow Christ early uh, in the ministry of, of Christ, and he was later appointed to be an apostle. Uh, his name basically means stone or rock. Uh, the, the Catholic Church would have you believe that the whole church is built upon Peter. But if you look at that text in Matthew, that's not what Jesus was saying at all. What kind of foundation would the church be if it was built, be, built on a mere man? That's kind of silly. Um, and if you can study that text out, you clearly see that that's not what the Lord was saying. But the Lord clearly singled out Peter for some reason. Do you ever notice when you're reading through the gospel accounts and you, you run across Peter, he always singled him out. And uh, it was always the apostles and Peter. Or Peter and the apostles. He was kind of the spokesman, you might say, for the 12 apostles. He, he was able to articulate the thoughts and the questions almost as they were his own. And when you think of Peter, you can, you can clearly read the first, chapter, or first 12 chapters of Acts and see Peter's triumphs and his weaknesses. He was a man, just like you or I. Um, and yet God used him in an incredible way. After the resurrection of, of our Lord and the ascension, Peter initiated the plan 
which called for replacing the fallen apostle Judas in Acts 1.15. It was actually Peter who initiated that whole thing. They had to pick a new apostle. And after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, he was empowered to become really one of the leading gospel preachers from the day of Pentecost. He performed a lot of miracles in the early days of the church. He opened the door uh, for the gospel to be introduced to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. Tradition tells us, this isn't biblical, but tradition tells us that Peter had to watch his wife be crucified. It's part of his martyrdom. And tradition says that he encouraged her with the words, remember the Lord. And when it came time for him to be crucified, tradition says that he pled not to be crucified right side up because that's the way his Lord was crucified. Rather, he should be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way his Lord was. That happened about 67, 68 A.D. But Peter was truly a man used by God in an incredible way. And you say, well, what's the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter? Um, some people come to 2 Peter, and uh, I wrote in my notes, 2 Peter is not second class. It doesn't mean that 1 Peter is better than 2 Peter. Both of these are inspired words of Scripture. If you had to summarize the two books, if you remember when we went through 1 Peter, really the, the, the emphasis of 1 Peter was to encourage suffering Christians. Those who were suffering under all the, the, the problems they had in this life and everything, Peter wrote that book to really encourage them in their faith. We need that, don't we? If you ever feel discouraged, read through the book of 1 Peter. It talks about trials and talks about all these things, but God is victorious through them. 2 Peter was really written for a whole other purpose. It wasn't really written to encourage us, however it does in some verses, but for the most part, it was written to expose false teachers. That was the whole purpose of the book. Um, when was it? It was written probably right around the same, right before his death, 67, 60, 68 A.D., Nero died in, in 68 A.D., and tradition says that Peter died in Nero's persecution. So this epistle, as he, we, we read here in one of the verses, he says, you know, pretty soon I'm going to give up this body. So it was right before his death. I think words of somebody on their deathbed mean something, personally. I mean, if I was on my deathbed and I had some last words to say, hopefully there'd be people there that would listen to him and they would be meaningful. I think what Peter wrote in this book is very meaningful to us as believers. Well, what's the, the background here? It was basically Christians to whom Peter wrote, and for the most part, they were Gentiles. That's who this, this book was intended for. And he was, all these false teachers were causing all these problems in the early church. And he wanted to basically expose them and show them. It's kind of his last will and testament. That's what he says in verses uh, 13 and 15. 
As long as I'm in this body, he says, I know pretty soon I'm going to put off this body. It means he's going to die. He knew it was coming. In the first letter, 1 Peter, he spells out that he was writing to the pilgrims in the dispersion of, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It says that right in verse 1 of chapter 1, 1 Peter. That's all those little areas over there in modern-day uh, Turkey. And they were mostly Gentiles, the people that were written. Here we're not told who he's really writing to. It's just we're not told, so we don't know. could be the same group. We don't know. We know kind of the makeup of the audience, but we don't know exactly who they were. So it might have been just a general letter to the, the, the church at large. I got some things before I'm going to die. I'm going to write these down. And the Lord inspired him through the Holy Spirit to, to record these things. And Second Peter was written to expose and thwart and defeat all this false heresy that was going on in the early church. Um, Peter really intended to instruct Christians how to defend themselves, which is very timely for us today. We need to understand what it means to defend the gospel, not just give in to the modern-day you know, watering down of everything and everything that's not politically correct. How do we defend the gospel of Christ against these kind of things? And this is probably one of the most graphic and penetrating expose on false teachers in the New Testament. He doesn't identify any specific false teacher. He doesn't identify any cult that's going on or really even name names. It's just kind of a general letter saying, hey, this is going to happen and you better be ready when it does. And he says that they, they teach destructive heresies. That somehow they deny Christ and they twist the Scriptures. That they somehow bring true faith into dispute. That they mock the second coming of Christ, he said. Oh, you've been saying that's going to happen for years. Give me a break. He's not coming back. He calls them in chapter 2, verse 1, destructive heresies. And it comes from a, a heart of wickedness. There's a lot of other themes that can be found here in this whole, whole book. But just remember, 2 Peter was written to expose these false teachers. Another thing you're going to find as we read through, hopefully you notice, that there's a recurring theme in the book of 2 Peter, in this little letter. And it's the importance of knowledge. He thinks that knowledge is very important. That doctrine is very important. That flies in the face of the modern day. Most churches today say doctrine is not important. It doesn't matter what you believe. Had a gal call me the other day on the phone. I don't know who she was. She said, I have a question for you. I said, sure. And she asked, what does the Bible say? I'm a, I'm a Christian. Should I marry an unbeliever? And I said, well, you're a Christian. Where do you think we should go to find the answer to that? He said, well, I would think the Scriptures. And I said, okay, well, let's do that. So we did. She said, I knew. I know that. I said, well, would you want me to give you another answer? I don't have another answer. I can't make something up. She said, no, I, I was kind of afraid of that. And I talked to her about how hard it is when you get involved with unbelievers and it ends in a, a marriage where you're not on the same page. You're going in two different directions. 
It's difficult. It doesn't mean God can't work. He could save that, that unbelieving spouse. We pray that he does. But you're going against biblical doctrine and biblical teaching if you willingly put yourself in that kind of environment, in that kind of a situation, in that kind of a relationship. But it was funny because she said, oh, I knew that. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you knew it? If you knew it, then why didn't you, you do it? <laughs> See, that's the problem today in our church. We know a lot of stuff about the Scriptures. We know a lot of stuff about Christ. We know a lot of stuff about His power and His provision and all this stuff. But when it comes down to, you know, the end of the month, we're looking at our checkbook and going, man, we don't know where the money's going to come from. We get ourselves in a frenzy and we work ourselves up and all of a sudden everything we know goes right down the toilet. The God that owns a, the, the cattle on a thousand hills, well, he's nowhere to be found all of a sudden. It seems like we almost have a convenient kind of faith. And we relegate it to between nine and, and noon on Sunday morning. Well, I'm going to have the faith then. But come Monday morning when we go to work and things aren't panning out at work very well, we forget about the God we just worshipped hours before. And we take things into our own hand, even though we know better. And what Second Peter tells us over and over again, that word knowledge is found over, well, about 16 times here in these three short chapters. You can go through and just circle them. And it's his primary solution to thwarting all this inerrant, this errant doctrine that's out there. Simply that you have to know what's true. You have to know the real stuff before you'll understand and stay away from the false stuff. The other distinctive of, of 2 Peter in verse 20 and 21, we read this. It includes a precise statement on the origin of Scripture. Sometimes people ask me, well, do you believe the Bible? Sure I do. Don't you think it was just a book? A bunch of guys got together and put together? No. When you study the historicity of the Bible, I mean, all the different authors over thousands of years, everything put together in one, one bound book. And nothing seems to contradict itself. It has the good, the bad, and the ugly in there. I mean, if I was going to write a book about God and all this, I'd leave all the, the sin stuff out. I mean, I wouldn't think that would be very popular with people. If my motivation was to write a bestseller, it would be to tickle people's ears so people would be wanting to buy it. I wouldn't want to tell them what a wretched sinner they are. And yet, that's exactly what Scripture does. But in verse 20 of chapter 1, 2 Peter, he says, knowing this first of all, in other words, of, of utmost importance, if you miss anything, don't miss this. In my letter to you, he says, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Isn't that what you hear all the time, though? When you share the word with somebody and you're, maybe you're trying to correct them or you're trying to show them, look, here's what the Bible says. I mean, the other day, you know, on the phone, well, what does that mean? You know, when I said, you know, the Bible speaks about being unequally yoked. And I explained you know, kind of the yoke thing, what that means. And, and it was just kind of, it means what it means. There's no hidden meaning here. 
It means you shouldn't be out there hooking up with someone that's not a believer, basically. Well, what does it mean here? It says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Do you know there's only one interpretation of any Scripture? How many times when you share the Bible, say, oh, that's your interpretation. No, it's not. There's only one interpretation of any Scripture. What the text meant in its original content. That's why it's so important that when we're studying the Bible that we're clear on context. We want to keep things in their context. We want to make sure that when we come together to study the Word of God that we're putting things in their context. We're not jumping around pulling verses willy-nilly out of texts that have nothing to do with what it's talking about. Example of that is how many times have you been in a prayer meeting and when you hear somebody say, Lord, maybe it's a small prayer meeting. This is usually when it happens. Lord, we just thank you that in your word you promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you're there in the midst. And they use it like they're talking about a prayer meeting. I mean, I heard that as a new believer and I'm thinking, wow, so if I'm in my dorm room by myself and there's nobody else there, I guess God doesn't hear me. If you have to have two or three, that's not talking about a prayer meeting in Matthew. It has nothing to do with a prayer meeting. It's talking about discipline in the church. See, we have to be careful how we pull things out of context. Because nobody has their own interpretation of Scripture. Scripture means what Scripture says. And to understand it, you have to understand the language. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand why was he writing this? Put it in its context. And then he says in verse 21, almost, if that wasn't good enough, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, he's saying, if you're thinking I just had a bad pizza and I got upset and I'm just ticked off and I'm going to sit down and pen you guys a letter, you're wrong. This isn't by my will. No scripture was ever produced by the will of man. That's why, beloved, this is a supernatural book. It it affects people's lives. When people say, well, you know, do you have anything that could help me understand Christ more? Read the book. Read the Bible. Start in the Gospel of John and read about Christ. And if you don't understand it, read it again. Ask God to help you understand it. That's the best thing that we can tell people who are questioning. I mean, there's a lot of helps you can give them, but a lot of times we just need to steer them right to the Word of God because no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's supernatural. That's why it's, we believe in the, the, the inspiration of Scripture. This isn't just a book that a bunch of guys got together and said, ah, we want it to be the bestseller of all time. Let's see, how can we do this? No. I mean, read your history. There's no way that someone could possibly do something like this. But it says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they didn't just sit down and, "Ah, okay, i got to write these guys a letter. No, the Holy Spirit moved within them. And when they wrote these words, they were literally writing the words of God. I think sometimes they, even after they were done writing it, said, whoa, what did I just write? That's pretty heavy stuff. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're, 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 you're sharing and maybe you're preaching, maybe you're witnessing to somebody. 
Maybe somebody else is there and they'll say, man, you know, man, you really hammered that or you were, you were really strong on that point. And, and you go, really? I didn't even know what was going on. Well, what's that? That's the spirit of God using your gifts and using your abilities to proclaim the word of God. And sometimes it's almost a supernatural event. Because if you were trying to do it on your own, it would fail. These men were moved by the Spirit of God. Well, it also, Second Peter will talk about the destruction of the world by fire. And we read that in chapter 3. And I think that it's so important that we understand that the world in which we live, I don't care what the tree huggers say and all those people, it's going to get burned up. It's not going to be here. I'm not saying we shouldn't be a good steward of it while we're here. I mean, I'm not into, you know, trashing the place. But the place is going to get trashed, okay? It's not going to be us to do it. God's going to take care of that for us. But there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. You know, sometimes I think that, that people have more, more passion for the whales out in the ocean than they do for the unborn fetus. I mean, it's horrible. It's sad. Last week I heard that basically Planned Parenthood said, well, if a mother was having an abortion and just by chance the baby actually lived out of the womb, was on the table, living out of the womb, disconnected from the mother, and it was still alive, it would still be up to the mother whether to kill that baby or not. (laughs) Incredible. Where these people get this stuff? And yet, they find a little spotted toad in the backyard. Some, oh, wow, you've got to clear this area. This is a nature preserve all of a sudden. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, God created the world for us to enjoy. And he created the oil for us to use, by the way. Just throw that in there. But it's, it's important, I think, for us to understand even more, more than this background to this, this letter. It has basically three primary purposes. And we mentioned the first one already, to alert the, the readers to the dangers of false teachers. To alert us, to, to show us how we can counteract that. And we're going to get into that in coming weeks. But then also... I like this second point because it's really to remind the readers that their personal faith should not, look at this, remain static. What do you mean? Well, it shouldn't just be on a level plane, a level field. It shouldn't remain static. If, If you're truly converted, if God has truly changed your life, God has saved you gloriously by His grace and His mercy and His power. There should be some kind of change in your life. I used to tell kids when I was a youth pastor, you know what? No change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. Period. I don't care how many times you raise your hand or walk the aisle or say you believe, whatever. Let me see it in your life first. That's the bottom line. We have a lot of people, even within the church, that are professing Christ. They're professing Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian. I've been a member here for years. But who cares? You think God cares about your membership at Grace Bible Church? I don't think he cares. 
I think he cares what are you doing with his son on a daily basis? How are you living your life in accord with Scripture? Are you bringing honor to his name? Or is your religion and your faith merely a convenient thing that you do on Sunday morning, disconnected from the rest of your life? It's important that we understand these things. That's why in verse 8, chapter 1, he says, If these qualities are yours, assuming he's talking to believers, and are increasing, I like that. (laughs) They're increasing. You're not on the static playing field. Things are getting better. They're increasing. It says they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In what? In ministry? No. In doing good things? No. It says they're in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's where the Christian life starts. I'm I'm thoroughly convinced that most believers who are struggling in their faith are just struggling. You can tell. You can see their countenance. It's, It's not one of joy. They're just beaten down. The world has them under the thumb. And they're Christians. But boy, they sure aren't living like one. Why? Because they've forgotten about the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've forgotten that last week happened. That it ever even happened. That he rose from the dead. They forgot it. And so they're stuck in all the turmoil and trial that 1 Peter talks about. And it overwhelms to the point where they just, they're just, they almost feel like they're lost. Where's God? Where's God when you need him? Man, I'm going through all this stuff and God's nowhere to be found. He wants his readers to be reminded that these qualities, and we'll go into those qualities in coming weeks, should be increasing. How are you doing in your own life? That's why he says at the end of the the book in verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But what? Stay the same? In the grace? No. But grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the Christian life is a life of growth. It's not a life of of just everything being the same all the time. That's why it's kind of exciting to be a believer. I mean, if you just got saved and that was all you got, it'd be kind of boring. If that was it, if there was no other, nothing, if God, when he saved you, he completed you and you were glorified, that was it. There was nowhere to go. There was no growth to happen. It would be kind of a boring life. I mean, just take me to heaven already. I don't need to put up with that down here. But that's not what God did. God saved us, and our position before him is one of justification. He justifies us. He, when, Christ, when God looks at us as believers in Christ, he looks at us as if there's no sin there. Positionally. But you and I both know practically that's not so. Because we deal with sin all the time. And that's part of the challenge. That's part of growing. You know, as a music, musician, sometimes I'll hear a piece of music and I'm thinking, man, I love that song. I've got to get to know that song. And I just start listening to it over and over. You know, my wife, oh, did you hear the song? You know, we well, are always listening to that song. I want to hear it again, you know. But I'm trying to learn it. I'm trying to, in my mind. I, so then I sit down at the piano. It's like, ah, oh, I know, you know, how it goes. 
and I can kind of pick it out. And then once I learn it, it's like, man, I'll play it and play it and play it till it's like ad nauseum, you know. But I love that kind of thing, you know. But after a while, I'm like, you know, I don't know. It's kind of boring now. I know it. I can play it with my eyes closed. I don't, I don't want to play it anymore. And then once in a while, you know, time lapses, maybe a year or so. You know, I used to like that song. Let's, and I'll sit down at the piano. And, Man, I knew it so well, and I'll start playing it, but I'll mess it up. Can't remember it. Why? Because it's not something that I've been maintaining. And so Peter writes to say, hey, you know what? You need to be reminded of things. You can't just remain static in your Christian life. That's not what we're called to. And then the last thing here before our communion time together is that he wants to encourage the believers in their faith. And the way he does that is he says, don't forget. Don't forget that the Lord is coming back. I think sometimes we, we forget those promises that God put in his word concerning his return and his care and his love for us. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, this is important, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions, the prophecies of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that there's going to be a lot of people that scoff about his coming. You hear it all the time. Right around Easter, right around Christmas. Oh, well, you know, you see it on Time Magazine. You see all those things. Was Jesus real? All this stuff. Of course he was. Is he coming back? Sure. Verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? This has been going on for so long. He hasn't come back yet. Beloved, one day he's going to come back. He's going to return. And I don't know about you, but... I'm excited about that day. I mean, can you imagine in the twinkling of an eye, that just not, not, not a blink, just a twinkle, the, the time it takes light to just refract off the, the eye. That's what that's talking about. It's not talking about your eye blinking. In that millisecond, boom, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be caught up to glory with him. What a wonderful thing. No more pain, no more aches, no nothing. You'll be in his presence for all eternity. I mean, what a, what a wonderful event to look forward to. I mean, think if in six weeks somehow I knew that if you bought a lottery ticket, you were going to win the mega millions and have $500 million at your disposal. Don't forget to buy that ticket. Here are the numbers. I guarantee you, you'll win. You think you'd maybe look forward to that a little bit? probably think I was nuts. Might not even believe me. But I bet you'd go spend a buck on a ticket. <laughs> what if he's right? What if he's right? You'd look forward to it. Are we looking forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are we growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He desires that. He alerts us. He reminds us. He encourages us. And the outline we're going to be going through in the next couple of weeks is, first of all, know your salvation. 
Secondly, know your scriptures, know your adversaries, and then also know your prophecy. You have that to look forward to. But I don't know where you're at here this morning. But as we even prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning, I just want to say a couple words about our communion. Because sometimes we need to be, like Peter says, reminded of certain things. I watched a teacher the other last night, actually, on TV, and they were having communion. And this teacher was talking about how, first of all, he was using the word Eucharist, which kind of made me a little nervous as an ex-Catholic, but the Protestant church. And I thought, okay, we'll see what he does here with this thing. And he started telling his congregation there that communion is when we come to this table and we eat Jesus. That's literally what he said. And he went on to kind of talk about even, I mean, from a Catholic background, that was very familiar to me, but I just thought, wow, that's kind of odd to hear this. And he went on. It it just misapplied a lot of truth concerning communion. And I thought, boy, how sad. You know, sometimes we forget what communion is all about. You know, it's really a time of of commemoration. It's a time to remember. Uh, Hebrews 10.10 says that Christ was offered, what, once for all. It's a time to remember, really, our communion time is that we understand that Christ left heaven. He left it. And he came down here on this earth and he was born in a human body. The incarnation. Philippians 2. That he set aside some of those privileges to come down and to put on a silly human body. The God of all creation constricted himself to a human body. That alone is something to remember. But also remember that he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that our Lord became poor so that we might become what? Rich. Sometimes we in America, I think, forget the blessings that God has bestowed upon us as a country. Just being born here. You may have zero in your your bank account, but just being born here within this country has so many blessings, has so many privileges that so many in so many parts of the world don't have. But because we're used to them, because we've grown up with them, we almost feel entitled to them. (laughs) And one of those entitlements sometimes is that simply we have a mentality as Americans that the whole goal in life is to work hard, work hard, and get rich. So that when that magical number of 65 comes, or whenever you retire, that we have money to spend on ourselves and enjoy our remaining time here on earth. Do you ever find that in Scripture anywhere? (laughs) I was thinking about that. I thought, you know what? I don't think that's a biblical concept. The whole concept of retirement is simply not biblical. 
doesn't mean you shouldn't save up money. You shouldn't should be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you. But if we're Christians and we're supposed to follow Christ's example, boy, <laughs> we got some learning to do. He also bore our sins, 1 Peter says, in his own body on the tree. He, he took upon himself. So when we come to this table, we're remembering the, the fact that Jesus came here sinless in every way. He was God. He took on a human body. He became poor so that we could become rich. And then he went to a cross and he, he willingly bore our sins, took upon himself the sin of us even though he had never committed any sin. It's like you going down to the courthouse Monday and finding somebody who's a murderer and walking in and say, hey, my record's clean. I want to exchange record with this guy and I'll, I'll, I'll do his time and he can go free. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous, right? But he actually paid for our sins in his own body. He willingly, Isaiah 53 says, took our place on Calvary. 1 Peter 1 tells us that he shed his blood for our redemption to purchase us. Because he was a perfect sacrifice and we, we could never be a perfect sacrifice. Because we're stained with sin. Matthew 28 says that he conquered death for us forever. Hebrews 7 tells us that he ascended back to heaven and serves as our high priest forever. See, this is a time when we come together around the communion time to remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it seems like in the Christian church, a lot of times today, you have one of two extremes. You have churches that do it every week. Every time they gather, they have communion. And it just becomes, oh, yeah, I have to do the communion thing, you know, get this out of the way. And then you have other churches that maybe don't do it enough. And when they do do it, they forget what it's all about. <laughs> so we want to be reminded today of God's sacrifice through his son and, and his graciousness. That he chose not to just blanketly send us all to hell as we deserve because of our sin. But he chose to give us a way out. He chose to provide a way of salvation for us. Scripture is very clear. The Bible says there's, there's no name given among men whereby, other than Jesus, whereby you must be saved. That he's the only option there is. There's not many doors that lead to the throne of God. There's one. His name is Jesus Christ. I'll ask you this morning, what do you intend to do with him? Father, we pray this morning as we prepare our hearts for our communion time. Lord, we thank you for this little letter of Second Peter and look forward to studying it in the weeks to come. But Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts that we would be reminded of some of these things that Jesus did in our place. Lord, we know them as believers. We understand these things. But your word says that sometimes it's good to remind us to bring it freshly back into our minds so that it's not foggy, but it's clear. Lord, I pray that somehow we, 
you could take us back to that day on Calvary when our Savior walked with that cross all that way and came up on that little hill we know as Golgotha after being beaten severely, brutalized, mocked, spit upon, stripped. After having carried his own cross, was nailed upon it. One spike through both feet. One spike each for each hand. Can't even imagine the pain that he must have went as they dropped that that cross into that hole and just the force and as those nails penetrated his hands and his nerves and as the sweat and blood mixed with the open wounds, the stinging, the, just the horrible pain, excruciating pain, physically. But even more than that, there's the spiritual element of all that happened that day that he was going to take upon himself as a sinless lamb of God all of the sin of all those who would ever believe. Father, that's truly an act of love, an act of mercy, an act of grace, an act of kindness. It's an act that saved us. I pray that we would not quickly forget that, but we would remember it, that we would ponder it. For those here this morning, Lord, this table is for believers. But Father, it only takes that gracious cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Acknowledgement of our own sin, crying out to a holy God that we could be made right in our relationship with you through the sacrifice of Christ through acknowledging that, turning from our sin to the Savior. That's what saves. It's God doing that work in our heart. And so, Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, that this morning might be the morning that you do that work, that you draw them to you. For believers, I just pray that we would examine our own hearts as the Word tells us to, to make sure that There's nothing hindering our relationship with you. No unconfessed sin, anything like that, that we come to this table fully in the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you for your sacrifice. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.